0: It's like, look, just own up to the fact that you're an intellectual. Like, yeah, you're a worker, and you have a regular job, and you have a regular life, but, you know, your commitment here is really intellectual. You've read something. You know? Like, if you pick up a book by Lenin, ever, you are putting yourself in the camp of the intellectual. Right?
1: Board. All right, so this is the new magic of the double-ender approach to uh, the Catron Zone. We're starting again. I've got Chris Catron on the phone, and I'm recording myself here in Portland. He's in Chicago recording himself. So, hello, Chris. Hi, Doug. So, w- where were we? We were talking about Caleb Maupin and uh, anti the kind of conservative anti-imperialism uh, of the 30s that had come up. Um, so. Maybe you could take it from there. You were explaining were Right. So
0: I think that we were talking about, um, you know, really how the left, uh, the socialist Marxist left kind of liquidated itself in the 20th century through things like anti-fascism and anti-imperialism. I mean, one thing that's interesting is that um, the left does divide itself between these things. It divides itself between an anti-fascist priority and an anti-imperialist priority. So usually the anti-imperialist priority will downplay criticism of countries that one's own country is in conflict with. And <clears throat> that creates all sorts of problems because it means apologizing for, you know, third world dictators or other kind of unsavory types. Um, anti-fascism though also has has a, a problem in that uh, they're actually connected and so now we experience it as well what are you going to prioritize you're going to prioritize fighting domestic authoritarianism um are you going to prioritize against like war policy and and you know defend or justify the external opponents of the capitalist state that one happens to inhabit you know the main enemy is at home which means uh, depreciating the criticism of others um, you know, we experienced during the war on terror that people downplayed the problems of Saddam Hussein in the Iraq War, or even you know, people have gone so far as to downplay the problem of Islamism, whether you know, Al Qaeda or the Taliban, or currently with the Israel Gaza war, downplaying the problems of Hamas. So the that kind of issue of finding allies for one's politics, whether external or internal allies, I would say that's a a significant problem for the left in the past hundred years. And figuring out who's progressive, what, what wing of capitalist politics represents a more progressive versus a more reactionary or simply conservative dimension. I think that that's um, really a problem that affects the left today that causes a lot of confusion and that people are un- unclear about the historical origins of that.
1: So why is it such a bad idea to look for political allies as socialists then? I mean, it sounds like if you are split between the fascists, being anti-fascist or anti-imperialist, maybe you're going to be looking for allies in an uncritical way, but... Is there a way to seek out, like, align with populists on an issue as a socialist? Or is that just always a mistake?
0: No, I mean, on issues, yes. And I think that this is one of the ways, it's a very subtle process. I mean, on, in some respects, at a, at a macro level, the result is pretty gross. Like, you know, in other words, big. Um, at, at, you know, a more fine-grained, sort of in-the-moment level, then it's pretty subtle. Meaning that it looks like you're only, you know, making a, an alignment and an alliance or an agreement on a single issue. But in fact, it tends to have a greater significance than that. Meaning that it really becomes a, a who whom question, is the way Lenin would put it. Who is using whom? And uh, so there was a time when the you know socialist movement based in the working class was in a relative position of strength and so could make alliances to its own advantage. As opposed to now of course well first of all there is no proletarian socialist movement there is no working class based socialist movement and the left even beyond that question is very small. And so it just becomes a matter of uh, tailing after or becoming the adjunct of, or becoming the left wing of, or giving the most extreme leftist rationale for really other people's politics. Um, And I think that that's, you know, where people will basically make the argument, well, the most urgent task is to fight the right. You know, the most urgent task is to try to stop or fight against the immediate threat right so um you know when we were talking about Israel-Palestine like the popular front for the liberation of Palestine the PFLP you know they might consider Hamas to be an enemy ultimately but right now they're an ally because the greater threat is the Zionist state is Israel right so it ends up being about downplaying differences and You know, in the history of anti imperialism, which is what we're talking about today, it becomes a question of siding with the anti imperialist bourgeoisie, both locally and in a foreign context, we might say, against the, you know, reactionary bourgeoisie. So, in the post-colonial world or in the colonial world there's this idea of the comprador bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie that has an interest in maintaining the colonial relationship to imperialism versus the local bourgeoisie which might be against that and that represents some kind of progressive national potential development. Um, so you make that distinction like in, in a peripheral country in a metropolitan country um you would make a distinction between again the more reactionary like the main enemy monopoly capital or finance capital and uh, against them you might align with the middle class the petty bourgeoisie and even the small capitalists right so that's kind of where it goes it goes to well the the urgent priority and this is why Originally, the anti-fascism, anti-imperialism wasn't much of a distinction because fascism itself was understood as the the, the naked rule, the most brutal rule of finance capital, right, or monopoly capital. Um, and again, there's some kind of foreshadowing of where people are going now with techno-feudalism, right, so the whole idea of techno-feudalism now is a kind of a replay of that. It's like, oh no, these aren't even capitalists, they're like, techno-feudal overlords, and maybe we should be on the side of, like, the capitalists against the techno-feudal overlords. Right? And, uh, you know, I mean, of course, this doesn't quite make sense, but it, it can sort of make sense. It's like, for me, an overwrought Marxist justification for something that really has nothing to do with Marxism, um, you know, which is more of a petty bourgeois democratic politics which may in and of itself may not be bad right it's not like okay you know maybe you can maybe we do have some hope that small capital can put a break on the absolute dominance of big capital that just sort of rides roughshod over everything and everybody you know but again that's not really the struggle for socialism that's a struggle for democracy Um, and You know, it's a struggle maybe for bourgeois rights against, like, corporate power, sure, or against the state that represents corporate power. Um, But again, in the meantime, what's been lost is the original vision of socialism, the broader vision of socialism, but also the Marxist vision of socialism. Um, I think that that's what we're really talking about. And I just think, well, if people want to be anti-imperialist in that way then they should by all means right but but don't confuse that for socialism and don't reach for marxist justifications for it because you don't need a marxist justification for this a and b you know you're kind of distorting things by using marxism you're distorting marxism you're also distorting like the reality you're contending with by trying to fit it into like a marxist framework
1: right well it strikes me and tell me if i'm wrong about this that during um the trump years um the anti-fascist left was dominant but the fascism was not conceived of as being identical to financial capital but rather conceived of as being either working class or petty bourgeois um and that the I, the main ideology about the fascism was that it was a populist from below petite bourgeois and even proletarian movement <clears throat> um so how did that shift or do you think it has shifted
0: i'm not sure that it has exactly i mean it's it's again there are different explanations that are available for people to reach for so in ashley's interview with caleb Moppen, for example you know, he said that he was opposed to the Frankfurt School theory of fascism because it located fascism in the inherent authoritarianism of people, mm-hmm. of like the workers and, and the petty bourgeoisie, and that you know, he again thought this is bad because it, it takes your eye off the ball, it loses sight of the real enemy, which is monopoly capital. Meaning, you know, fascism is just a, a form of political rule that's in the interest of monopoly capital. And to blame the people for that seems rather perverse to his mind. And again, by looking at popular sources of authoritarianism in people's psychology, he just thought, okay, this is really giving up the struggle against capitalism. Because again, to his mind, capitalism is the rule of the capitalists. Um, so you know, there's a, there's a lot that's kind of built into this. Now, I would say that what we're dealing with in the more recent period is the realignment is what some people have addressed and what Jacobin Magazine and the DSA called dealignment, meaning disaffection of the working class for the Democratic Party. After Obama, after the Great Recession, after the failure of the Obama presidency to really address the issues raised by the Great Recession. And so then the issue is, okay, well, the white working class and the swing voters that the white working class represent and in the swing states of the post industrial like Rust Belt Midwest, like how did Trump win the election in 2016, through an appeal to such people, and then people kind of bore down on the statistics and they were like, well, actually it wasn't the working class. It was the petty bourgeoisie. It was not even necessarily the petty bourgeoisie, it was the small capitalists, right? Um, I think that Sora Bamari talked about this in our discussion in New York last summer, right? Like who is the base of the Republican Party? Like what, do the, what does the Republican Party represent? And then it's a mistake to say that somehow Trump and Trumpism represented the working class per se. So people can always go that route. Um, But it still raises the question, I mean, in in some respects, I appreciated the Caleb Maupin interview because I thought it had a virtue of clarity in that he was just willing to come out and say, yes, you know, there is this discontent in small capital against imperialism, and, uh, and, you know, one can make an alliance with that, right? Right, And I think that that makes other leftists, like in the patron discussion that you had with, um, uh, you had an uh, uh, IMT uh, member from Canada, uh, who basically said, oh, well, Caleb Maupin's a fascist, or he's cavorting with fascism, or flirting with fascism, or uh, allied with fascism. And I think that that's what that means, right, when, when Caleb Maupin is like, well, you know, there might be a point to aligning with small capital against big capital against monopoly capital. Um, that sounds like, oh, well, then you're aligning with fascism. Um, now, there are so many it's distinctions there. You know, it's class collaborationism. Of course it is. But again, it's kind of like, <clears throat> are we talking about class collaborationism? Because are there, is there a working class that is constituted that is then like collaborating with another class? No, not really. We're really talking about the Democratic Party. And we're really talking about a middle class vote, we might say, the swing vote. Um, and the working class not, you know, generally speaking, the working class is not voting. That's the real issue. And so insofar as the working class does vote, then the two parties get into a kind of competition for who's going to get higher turnout or who's going to depress the the other side's vote. And, you know, that could be middle class, but it's also working class. Meaning, is the working class enthusiastic about voting or are they not enthusiastic about voting? So it's really more that kind of thing. And, you know, so when thinking about like the base of a party who does the party represent? Who votes in local elections versus national elections? And looking at like small, like retailer capital or something like that, small, small scale capitalism, like the actual capitalists of small capital. And, you know, others like professionals obviously are a different kind of middle class, um, small business owners, you know, people who might be pissed off because of the COVID lockdowns because they lost their business or their business suffered a great deal in that environment. Um, There's a lot of murkiness here that can hide behind the term middle class. So to say, oh, well, Trump, for example, Trump and Trumpism is not really a working class phenomenon. It's a middle class phenomenon. Well, that can mean all sorts of things.
1: Right. And the thing about that is I usually use income as the metric to judge, which is a really murky metric. Um, and I recall back in the early two, you know, after Trump was the nominee, arguing with a Marxist. I'll just name him. It was Andrew Kleiman um, about this issue, and he was pointing to income as an indicator that it that Trump's base was petty bourgeois, or, or you know, <clears throat> and I said to him, "Well, listen, we just." You know, spent a whole a lot of time reading capital and learning that you don't judge someone's class position based on their income, and that you can be highly paid and still be exploited. And, and he he didn't want any part of that argument. But um, that I don't think that is uh, how you should judge whether or not someone's working class. Um, and I also think judging whether or not someone's working class today is murky, and there are lots of ways people can try to push people they don't like out of the working class in their mind and, or bring them in when they, they want them to represent them. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we talked about the, that uh, last time, I think the truckers or the truckers working class. Right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. Um, yeah. But I, I wonder today, cause I heard this morning that Donald Trump is ahead in the polls. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I heard it was nine points ahead in the polls and I'm not sure if that was a national poll or a swing state but he but he was well ahead of Biden at this point in in the national polling and then and also in swing states that matter so this is something that did not ever happen before he got elected in 2016 he was always behind in the polls the polls were weighted against him um and It seems to me that we're in a moment where the left is not so mad at Donald Trump anymore. Um, Unclear. Um,
0: I mean, I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on what we mean by the left. Um, I would say that there's a disaffection with Biden, especially over the Gaza war, but also more generally, um, which is a little... Remarkable because I don't know that besides the Gaza war, but that Biden represents any great betrayal. You know, he seems to have been trying to follow through on the progressive agenda, unless people. Th- say that, that the
1: Ukraine invasion is also a betrayal, but.
0: Yes, that is there as well. I mean, obviously, that is coming out now more and more that people are like, "Well, why are we funding this war in Ukraine?" Mm-hmm. And. You know in the face of other problems and you know it seems like the democrats are having a hard time dealing with that because they're just like well in the big picture the funding of the war in ukraine is not really that much money right and therefore you know in other words it's not it's not like that is actually holding back any domestic political agenda it isn't right right? um so it's you know But people might imagine that it is, you know, they hear like 100 billion or 160 billion in the end, and they're just like, oh, couldn't that be spent on something else? You know, but meanwhile, the infrastructure bill was like trillions, right? So it's like, you know, (laughs) Um, but anyway, so I don't know what it exactly signifies. You know, I think that when the Democrats say, well, we have to do this in order to prevent our own troops from having to fight Russia. I I think that the messaging is is like backfiring. So it does come back around to the anti-imperialism question. And I think that what the Democrats are trying to do now is say, well, look, there's this new, but also a return to isolationism in the Republican party. And that's really dangerous because look, the world needs us and look how the world order benefits us. And, you know, this is going to be some kind of neglect of a vital interest people are losing sight of. And you know, a, another a, a version of voting against your interests, right, that um, I think that it's really beguiling for them, for the Democrats to see what this kind of war symbolically represents. I mean, again, even the Gaza war with Israel might symbolically represent something very similar to the Ukraine war. So behind the sort of Palestinian solidarity and opposition to settler colonialism and anti-Zionism and this kind of thing might be something just very simple, which is, oh, another war in the Middle East. Do we want to have anything to do with that? No. Right. I mean again I'm watching Fox News and when Iranian aligned like Shiite militias were attacking US bases and there was like 200 attacks on US bases over the last couple of months and it's like are there even 200 places to attack and it turns out actually there are right the US has all these bases from the Iraq occupation and also from the intervention in the Syrian civil war and in the fight against ISIS, the US has established all these and some of them are quite small bases where there are only like 100 US troops and they're just dotting the region. And so, you know, people like uh, Rand Paul and others like Republicans are, are there to say, why are we even there at all? Like why are US troops there to be targets at all, right? Um, You know, are they just there as a tripwire for some Middle Eastern war? And I think that, you know, of course, Hamas's intention was to trigger a regional war in the October 7th attack. And that does seem to have borne out to some degree, although it hasn't exploded to the extent that they might have liked. Um, And so I think that there's a war fatigue still that was very important in 2016 for Trump. And that comes back now. In other words, that was not an issue in 2020, right? Insofar as the 2020 election was about anything except COVID, I think it was just about COVID really. At the end of the day, I think that the 2020 election was all about COVID. How could it not have been dominated by that? Um, And, you know, the sense of frustration and, you know, I feel like it was bad for all incumbents. All incumbents suffered from COVID more or less. Um, And so now it's back, right? Now we are back in a 2016 moment. And the Republicans can make a plausible case where they can say, well, this globalist agenda that insists on this U.S. role in the world in the interest of these purported progressive policies, you know, that here we are again, you know, trying to represent democracy in the world and, you know, standing up to dictators, right? Or whatever, fighting terrorism, like it's kind of like everything. It's like Putin, Hamas, you know, Saddam Hussein, Al-Qaeda, right? It's like, (laughs) are we really back here again? And so I think that the Democrats underestimate just how powerful that basic level of perception is. And it does raise anti-imperialism. Then I do think that there is a kind of a return of an anti-imperialist moment.
1: Yeah, but well, I, I wonder if on the when when you're talking about working the working class vote and that petite bourgeois vote that's going to Trump rather than being actually coming from the left. I don't think very many people on the left are really going to vote for Trump. But but um, when if it's a combination of that war fatigue, but also, um, oh, you know, my pet prod pet project my pet peeve is um the amount of authoritarian control over our culture through s- the censorship apparatus and the i combine that in my mind it feels like the same issue i'm not happy with the way the democrats are using the courts uh in what's called lawfare against donald trump um and, and others yeah <clears throat> and um it seems to me that trump's popularity started to increase dramatically after his first politically motivated indictment. So it seems to me that the love of Trump, the turning towards Trump has a a bourgeois moral flavor to it. Like we, we don't, we refuse to go along with these anti-democratic, unprincipled, approaches to our institutions and the corruption of our institutions in the name of naked power
0: graphs. I mean, maybe I could put it this way. Um, So we are back to 2016 in terms of war fatigue and opposition to U.S. war policy after the war on terror. And we're also back to a 2020 election because it's going to be another referendum on COVID. I think that for most people, the idea of like government control over information, censorship, and also, you know, government compulsion, it's still, it's going to be a referendum on COVID again, um, but now to the detriment of the Democrats, because COVID didn't get any better under Biden. It got worse. And I think that people really remember that. They remember the school closures, they remember the mask mandate, the vaccine mandate. I think that even in blue states, Right there's a kind of like <clears throat> you know we did all these things did it help? They insisted upon it. They promised it would help. It didn't really help. They lied to us. Just at a very basic level, you know, <clears throat> and um, they you know I think that Biden a lot of the Biden and the inflation the inflation is associated in people's minds with COVID too right because the democrats blamed inflation on you know logistics chains and supply issues but then it turned out it it carried carried on beyond that right. and so you know the raising of the interest rates to fight the inflation well it's kind of like but why did we have inflation to begin with well covid now of course from our perspective you and i doug we might see the inflation and the rising of interest rates a little bit differently right we might see it as as a delayed thing in other words as something that that they tried to put off for as long as possible until ultimately they had to do it meaning you know keeping interest rates artificially low through the great recession and even before that you know maybe we're paying the price for it now you know yeah, that's i see, I right? see it right like, yeah. structural adjustment in that sense Um, And then, of course, people are there like the Jacobin DSA people are there and others are there to say, well, this is like a class war thing that wages were going up and the way they're counteracting that is through inflation and higher interest rates. That's true too. Mm -hmm. That's of course true as well. But again, that just sort of attributes political motives that are not really the case because the actual decision making is much more technocratic, much less political. And But the perception of it, right? So the perception of it is we're being screwed over by these people who are lying to us, right? And so it's just very basic, you know? And they were lying, and they are lying, right? Like they are lying about inflation and interest rates and everything else. And they try to get around it you know, I think that what's, what's remarkable is given the climate change agenda, um, you know, people will point out, the Democrats will point out that they're pumping oil higher now than under Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and again, so when Trump comes, you know, on the campaign trail and he says, drill baby drill, and we're gonna pump more oil, and the Democrats are like, but we're pumping more oil than ever. But again, it's a perception thing. Meaning that how, how, how do people perceive it? And this is where the petty bourgeoisie are kind of screwed. Meaning the working class wages, that's one thing. But the petty bourgeoisie actually is screwed in some ways more directly. Because like business loans are very important for small business owners. And interest rates like, like we have now are really a killer. Right? right? And then, of course, they get into other things like home ownership. people can't afford mortgages because the interest rates are too high, and that has a complex relationship to the housing market and real estate values and this kind of thing. But just at a basic level, people think, you know, it's going wrong and that, in a way, the Democrats have overplayed their hand because they've identified themselves with centralized authority, you know, high power you know, like high levels of society and its power, corporate power. Like there is a perception of, okay, these people are in charge. They're proud of being in charge. They're claiming to be in charge. And we're getting screwed.
1: If you're our age or older, this feels, I think, like a continued failure that's lasted, you know, 20 20- years years. 30 years maybe, you know, really, but certainly 20. Um, since 9-11 on. Yep,
0: since the early um, uh, since, like, the stagflation, the dot-com bubble. Yeah. Like, the pre, yeah. pre, pre-Great and not, Recession. Not
1: just, not just economically, but socially and politically as well. Like, we've, we've had, um, well, but the reason I said maybe 30 years is because there was the collapse of the Soviet Union, and what came out of that was a desert storm, and uh, you know, the, the Panama and, Though and that didn't raise the, much the,
0: popular discontent. I mean, there was a significant anti-war movement around the the Gulf War, the, uh, you know, the yeah. Kuwait, Iraq, uh, U.S. intervention. However, not like there was there was a much more mass Disaffection with the war on terror. You know, Cindy Sheehan. You no, know,
1: but I just think it 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 cumul it's a cumulative because the promise at first was okay, the Cold War is over, we're gonna have this peace dividend, we're going to there's a new world order, you know, the, this end of history and all that. Now, not everybody even heard about right. that exactly, but
0: but there the, was a tone. The, the
1: idea was there was a tone of like, we are going to have a you know more bourgeois successful society we don't have an enemy in the world we, we things should be more runs more smoothly global you know, village going forward. yeah and uh within 10 years of the collapse of the Soviet Union we had our first attack on US soil since uh, world war 2 since uh, bombing of pearl harbor uh and we uh, were promised a, a never ending war on terror which then turned into an economic crisis, which then turned into a political crisis with Donald Trump. Uh, and there's a sense now that the cities are falling apart, and that there's too much homelessness, and that every, your your brother-in-law's dead from fentanyl, and you know, just it just seems like a massive, you know, cumulative, long-term, failure.
0: Yes, and I was gonna say, okay, so it's a replay of 2016. It's also a revisiting of 2020. But you know, of course, it's a it's also gonna be some kind of a replay of 2000 of Bush v. Gore. And that's a complex question because you know, I feel like the Clinton years were generally good. People appreciated the Clinton years. It was a period of relative quiescence. And even though that 2000 election was hotly contested, I think that Bush, George W. Bush, kind of, you know, he, he, he didn't, both in the campaign, but also especially after the Supreme Court decision and after him being installed, um, winning the election that way, uh, you know, kind of promised to not change things too much from the Clinton era. And, of course, that's where 9-11 and the War on Terror really does change things, right? Because it looks like, oh, actually, did it matter whether Bush was elected or Gore was elected? I mean, I guess, you know, inconvenient truth, whatever, Gore would have been some kind of global warming guy in a way that Bush was not. But generally speaking, I don't think that it was, you know, considering the drama around the Bush v. Gore election and the, the controversy around that uh, the decision by the Supreme Court, it didn't feel like, okay, this is hyperpolarization.
1: It didn't you know what, but it did it did, we thought it did at the time people on the left thought it did, you know, and the there was a the red and the blue that's when it emerged.
0: That's when the concept emerged, long, long. that's for sure I mean obviously a a close election raises the question of okay, how is the society really divided
1: and there was such a massive amount of focus on. The religious right after the election. Surely, because he was himself
0: a kind of fundamentalist, a born again.
1: Yeah, so yeah, there was a there was a cultural that's
0: the left, split. but the broader society. In other words, when thinking about the significance of the election, and again keeping in mind the kind of return of a kind of populist anti-imperialism. Because I think that that's what Caleb Maupin and people like that, like MAGA communism, that's what they want to do. They want to say it's patriotic to be anti-imperialist, which of course it is, right? right? Um, meaning like, why should the U.S. sacrifice as global policemen? You know, why shouldn't you know the you know U.S. leave other people alone and take care of our own affairs, right? Wow. So, wow.
1: There are lots of reasons. There are lots of um... reasons.
0: But but again, that's not something that, you know, intuitively makes sense. And again, when the Democrats are like, trust us, we're in charge, we know what we're doing. People don't like that.
1: No. No.
0: No, it's true
1: that the level of dissatisfaction, this is something I felt as a loss, actually. The level of which maybe shows you how uh, enmeshed in some sort of left counterculture I've been my whole life. But... um, uh, when in the last half decade, since since uh, Trump lost, and really probably since two thousand sixteen, I felt that the left has lost its position as the way that dissent and dissidence is expressed.
0: I guess I'll just remind um, you of something, which is because I've been thinking about yeah. this, you know, because obviously, you know, when I think of my adult lifetime, and I think, okay. When was the boogeyman of fascism, when did it really raise its head? I mean, it was with the Reagan revolution, I think less so with George Herbert Walker Bush. It comes back under Clinton with like the militia movement and things like that, right? And I remember like Alexander Coburn in The Nation being like, well, you know, this militia movement, maybe it's not all bad. Right, like maybe this is a challenge to the left, like maybe we shouldn't neglect these people's discontents. Gore
1: Vidal interviewed Timothy McVeigh.
0: Right, right. Yeah. You know, and again, it's kind of like, okay, so it's it's sort of there, but then it sort of receded a bit, um, but then it comes seems to come roaring back with Trump. And there's enough time involved that we're really dealing with like different generations. Like the alt-right, you know, is, a new generation, it's like a millennial kind of phenomenon, it's like kind of a shadow phenomenon to the millennial left. And I think that's what has people freaked out, you know? Um, You know, I mean, Trump had to answer to like David Duke, right? Like, oh, David Duke endorsed you, what do you think of that? And Trump's like, I don't know who David Duke is, what are you talking about, right? (laughs) And you know, because who did, right? And uh, anymore, I meaning knew I knew it too, but that's that's our generation, yeah, right. You know, but do millennials know who David Duke is? No, right. right. So, but they know who the alt right is. They know what Four Chan is or whatever, right? right yeah. And so, it's a funny thing because again, if we track it, I mean, obviously, capitalist politics is about moving from crisis to crisis. Mm-hmm. It is. Right? It's never like there is a time when there's not a crisis. There is. But clearly we've kind of stepped into a whole other level of crisis now in the more recent period with Trump. And of course it's easy to blame Trump, that Trump is himself undoing everything. You know, and it's like, well, no, clearly there was a crisis. There was an opportunity for someone like Trump to come along, and again, I think that i think i mentioned this in one of my articles i think it's in why not trump again that i talk about how the clearest indicator of counties voting for trump was veterans of the war on terror meaning like where where you had more people proportionally who had experienced the war on terror firsthand like veteran families from the war on terror they were more likely to vote those counties were more likely to go for trump And again, not out of patriotism, but out of war fatigue, right? So this is the idea, is that the Trump wing of the Democratic Party represents like isolationism, retreat from, you know, U.S. commitments in the world, right? And it's kind of like, well, okay, but what is the significance of that? At the end of the day, what is that? And even like the most recent controversy is around NATO, right? Because Trump said something like, If the NATO countries don't pull their fair share, then I'm just going to say, Russia, go for it. It's such a Trump thing to do. It's such a Trump thing to do, because, of course, it doesn't mean, you know, they're just like, oh, see, he's like inviting Putin to invade Europe. It's like, no, 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 obviously not. You know, it's absurd. Um, You know, and so, but again, what does that mean to people? Like, why would a Trump audience applaud that?
1: well because they think that these europeans who look down their noses at americans and they do uh should <laughs> should you know pay up uh you know pay their share we why and and they and when they hear that they don't just hear dollars and cents they hear loved ones yes. having gone off to war put your body on the line you know?
0: absolutely yeah yeah that's absolutely yeah. i mean
1: and you you're you're if you're a military family in in america and you hear, oh, the UK is talking about conscription because they're worried about Russia, probably your heart's not breaking. No.
0: It's probably like, you know? damn right, they should be. <laughs> right. right? Um,
1: <clears throat> mm-hmm. I would
0: say that, you know, one thing that we tend to also forget, and I think it was, it was an opportunity for the millennial left generation, but also a, a neglect of the millennial left generation. You know, there was another millennial generation, and that was the, the generation that went to war right the troops and they came back physically and mentally scarred and there are a hell a lot of them there are a lot of them
1: there was a there was a a left that that received them there was there was
0: but they didn't know what to do with them
1: well that left was mostly boomers though that's true it was like vet veterans for peace yes you know and and these kind of remnants of the new left some
0: memory of vietnam that's Mm -hmm. right and but again i kind of feel like well here's a situation where the left's cultural isolation really gets the better of it you know so i'm not going to say well like the left spat on the veterans they didn't no that's not what happened that's not what happened in the 60s either you know it certainly didn't happen now but could they really integrate that discontent not really, not readily, and you would think, oh, they're anti imperialists they're this and that, so why can't they make use of the discontent of a generation that saw this policy firsthand? I mean, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, I guess, represents this. You know, she, she always says, you know, um, you know, it's the people who experience war who are the most anti-war because they know what it means. You know, and it's all well and good that these foreign policy hawks want to do this and that, but are they really thinking about the people who are going to be asked to sacrifice? And, you know, so that's, that's still, I think, a large portion of the electorate. And, again, how does one understand the anti-imperialism of that? I mean, of course it is conservative reactionary. It is. It is. Um, And, but again, what we're really talking about is the progressives. How progressive are the progressives? What is this progressivism? Like let's just grant that the US defending Ukraine against Russia is the progressive side of history. Let's just grant that. What does that even mean? You know, in other words, if it's not about like the rainbow rainbow flag over Kyiv. Or something, you know? Uh,
1: it's not about that. It, but, but it's about <clears throat> holding on to the order that came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think, and grow and, and expanding it, expanding uh, global, uh, in, you know, U.S. imperialism.
0: In that respect, I, I, yeah,
1: yeah. In that respect, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that that, and that's what's progressive about it.
0: Yeah, you know, no, exactly. That,
1: that's what's progressive. Exactly.
0: About it. So of course, like there are two questions with regard to Ukraine. One is the NATO and the other is the EU. Right. And you know, I I kind of feel like I don't think Putin would have objected to the Ukraine joining the EU the way he objected to the Ukraine joining NATO.
1: No. I don't think he would have. I don't know. Right. But I don't think he would have.
0: And so You know, again, it's kind of like, well, okay, what does the U.S. represent here? What does the war in Ukraine represent? Does it represent U.S. imperialism? No, it represents like the U.S.-led world order, and European interests are more directly at stake.
1: Right.
0: Right. You know, and you could say global capitalist interests are more directly at stake than you could say the U.S. interests are directly at stake. And but again, that's where you get this kind of more petty bourgeois or small capitalist or more you know nationally concerned or isolationist sentiment expressed by Trump. You know
1: the left anti-imperialists would listen to what we are saying and think that's just Western chauvinism and eurocentrism. We we'd call dare to call that progressive uh, out of just chauvinism. But um, the. Biden.
0: Biden's a progressive. Biden will proud, well, that's proudly why... claim that he is a pro- the progressive president, you know, more progressive than Obama, right? More progressive than Bill Clinton. You know, they'll proudly claim right, Well, this.
1: But the way that I think of it being progressive is that it is a way to maintain a, a liberal market economy on a global scale, um, as uneven and unfair as that is, Rather than have the world crack up and fall into local disputes and national rivalries and and, and maybe break out into a new uh, world that's divided in half like it was during the Cold War. Yeah, it's an interesting
0: thing because I was thinking about it in terms of like multipolarity and the fantasy that people mm-hmm. have of multipolarity and what mm-hmm. that's supposed to represent and BRICS and this kind of thing. You know, multipolarity does multipolarity mean Brazil? or does it only mean China and Russia? What does it mean? You know, is it political?
1: It's like India, China, and Russia. Right. (laughs) Because they're the big ones. Is it
0: economic? Is it political? What is this multipolarity, right? Because the BRICS is like an economic concept that I think people want Mm -hmm. to translate into like a political concept. And that's where, I don't know, Brazil, like, you know, vilifying Israel and the United Nations seems to represent something. And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, again, there's a kind of a confusion about this. You know, I'm just taking seriously the kind of Western chauvinism idea mm-hmm. where it's kind of like, well, but what, what do we mean when we say imperialism? Do we mean an economic thing? Do we need a, po- a political, a geopolitical thing? What, what is it that we're really talking about here? Because I think that earlier on, like at the dawn of the millennial left, for example, a kind of Naomi Klein shock doctrine kind of attitude and, like, kind of echoes of anti-globalization, WTO protest, mm-hmm. whereas today I feel like, well, who's against the WTO today? It's the Trumpian right.
1: Well, it was them, it was them too, even then. It was. Even though, you know, it was like the Ross Perot's and the, and the Ron Paul's and the populist right. It was, but I think right. the
0: left remembers it as leftist. And I think mm-hmm. the left today is downplaying that.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I, uh, so, Mike, I guess my, my question would be is that, I mean, we don't really want to embrace a progressivism that would embrace imperialism in the old Republican way, right? That we, we, we might want to align with it if we had a proletarian socialist movement for political reasons, Maybe but on certain issues maybe but we really wouldn't want to embrace it that's not the vision and the if we talk about the uh conservative um anti-imperialism these are the people that are outright you know uh, it, it just seems so confused to me actually it's like that they're they're embracing hamas right but and what does that actually mean it doesn't it doesn't translate into
0: So, I didn't watch this, but I saw Glenn Greenwald has a video that he just released saying Navalny was not a good guy.
1: Yeah, I saw
0: it. And I just thought, okay, I'm sure there's something there. You know, there's some facts, there's something, right? Because I know nothing about Navalny, right? But I kind of feel like, but isn't this just to dampen anti Putin US propaganda? Isn't that the whole, isn't that Greenwald's point? Like, in other words, Greenwald, of course, is there to talk about the truth and be a journalist and, you know, show that maybe all dissent in Russia is not great. That's fine. But I feel like really what it's about is we don't want we don't want the Democrats to have any more ammunition against Putin to justify their Ukraine policy.
1: Right. That's that's what it is. And um, I watched two uh, conversations about Naval Navalny. Is that how you say his name? Um, and one of them was Greenwald's and the other was done by Robert Wright. And Robert Wright's this centrist. He's anti, uh, Ukraine war and he's, he's against the bombardment of Gaza and he, you know, critic of Israel, but old new Republic centrist Democrat. Right. And, and he's interviewing, uh, a young guy that had been working for blogging heads for a while and now is off on his own who was a Russian. So he hired this Russian kid to edit his videos and things back in, you know, maybe 10 years ago and now they're still friends and, and this Russian kid and I didn't watch all of it, but this Russian kid was like knew who Navalny was, knew his history, uh, had met him, um, remembered when he tried to run for president, um, and depicted him as a dissident, not you know not pure as the blue sky not necessarily correct politically but a real dissident against putin who he sees as a dictator (laughs) and who he hates right um and i thought well probably the way to understand this is to take up what's true in both of these you know videos um and but the most true thing from my perspective is that you know yesterday was the day that uh julian assange tried to appeal the extradition to the united states and he's being extradited and charged with the crime of being a journalist as far as i can tell and you know the it is absolutely true that it's completely hypocritical for western leaders to be upset about navalier and being really in the process of killing Assange at the same time, um, so from my you know leftist perspective, we should be uh, shouting from the rooftops about uh, Assange and, but not not in and we shouldn't be supporting the continuation of the escalation of the war in Ukraine or the continuation of the war in Ukraine. We should be pushing for a peaceful resolution and settlement. I think, and I've said that for a long time. But that doesn't mean embracing Putin as some sort of champion of the left or anti-imperialism. And it doesn't mean and just the same thing with Hamas is like, obviously, Israel, Israel's bombardment and destruction of Gaza is a, a, an atrocity that I oppose. But I wish I had something that I could say that should happen, <laughs> you know, But I don't, except maybe you know, the old tried and true two-state, one-state negotiated negotiated settlement and
0: the the ending of the war. Um, I mean, what I was going to say about Assange is I think that Assange is also a victim of the anti-Putin, anti-Russian sentiment. Yes. Yes. Right. And so I feel like what Assange did that can't be forgiven is help Trump get elected against Hillary Clinton. That's not, that's not what he's charged for. Well, of course, there's no crime, like you know, there's no like statute in the books that says if you're opposed to Hillary Clinton, then execution. Well, they could
1: have, <laughs> well, they could have charged him for if they could demonstrate that Russia gave him right the uh, Democratic Party and right. and, and uh, Clinton campaign emails, then they could charge him with that. I guess. But yeah.
0: I mean, but it, you know, th- yeah, was, <laughs> that's.
1: But the reality is that they, that didn't actually probably right. happen. That, right. it, it, <laughs> you know?
0: I agree. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's crazy because um, the anti-Putin line, which I think was really, I'm not sure, but it seems to me it was really more about Trump than it ever was about Putin at the beginning. Yes. But it, from what I've heard from the reporting that I read from uh, Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, they just kind of threw a dart to figure out what foreign power they would claim that the Trump uh, 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 campaign was collaborating
0: with. It's a curious thing. I mean, it's an interesting thing because, again, uh, obviously something happened in 2014. So if we, if we go back to the Euromaidan, to the Maidan, um, mm-hmm. you know, the color revolution, whatever you want to call it that happened, and the mm-hmm. Russian seizing of Crimea. Right. Right. That's when this war really began. And because that's when um, you started having, you know, the kind of insurgency or civil war in the Russian-majority Eastern provinces of Ukraine.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, And so, you know, who started it? You know, I feel like the Ukrainian government did, you know, implement some anti-Russian policies with respect to that minority, but also Russia was probably, you know, um, creating maybe a kind of a faux popular revolt against the uh, central government in in Ukraine. Um, Or maybe it was a legitimate popular revolt by the Russian majority provinces. You know, I don't know enough about it to really adjudicate that, but that's Mm -hmm. where you get the Azov brigade and, you know, the the neo-Nazis and whatnot. And mm-hmm. so, that's under Obama. And I remember that being a crisis of the Obama administration. Right. right. And I think that that is the background for the 2016 election and why it's not simply a matter of throwing darts at a board. Like, I think that Hillary Clinton was there to say, Putin's an enemy.
1: Yeah, I think you're yeah, right? right.
0: And because of the Crimea... But they
1: hadn't. The thing is, they hadn't settled on that before they decided they were going to investigate the Trump administration. That's uh, different.
0: Yeah, of course, that's another point. And, um, right, and they went after people like Paul Manafort and whatnot, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who supposedly had ties to Russia or whatever. Um, uh, right. Which, to my mind, I think that the only connection there is, like, the international oil industry or something. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, I mean there was. Right? <laughs> it was... <laughs> yeah, it was just. It was completely politically motivated as far as I'm, I mean, you know, I could go into details. I'm sure there was, you Mm -hmm. know, there's details, but it was a politically motivated, uh, October surprise, dirty attack on uh, a a, a political campaign. campaign.
0: Yeah. So it's a curious thing because again, it became symbolic. I mean, sometimes I do feel like the Democrats have talked themselves into this hostility to Putin out of hostility for Trump, that it's like a transposition You know like Mm -hmm. trump represents putin but also putin might represent trump in their mind you know and it's kind of like he
1: preferred clinton he preferred clinton
0: that's what he just said right but of course that might be some like psyop right
1: (laughs) no no but i mean there was some reporting done that there was the the brennan report that said he supported trump had to suppress most of the russian experts and the majority of the intelligence from the u.s that indicated the opposite. Right. So
0: I mean, I know from looking at the China case, Xi, that the Chinese Communist Party was very unhappy with Trump's election yeah. because they felt like they had no way of understanding what he might do. Yeah,
1: that's what Putin...
0: Exactly. Right? Yeah. He's a wild card. You know, in other words, that they would have preferred Clinton because it's predictable, mm-hmm. um, whereas the Trump administration, you know, is unpredictable. And so I remember in the Chinese case, they were really scrambling to try to understand Trump and really kind of at a loss. I mean, and I guess that's the other thing that we should remember about these bureaucrats, whether in Russia or China or the United States, they're pretty narrow-minded people who lack imagination, meaning it doesn't take much to confuse them. Yeah. You know, like yeah. in other words, they just have this understanding of the world. And then anything that doesn't fit that, they either ignore until they can't ignore it, and then they're like completely upset about it.
1: Yeah, I I want to get back to the to the anti-imperialist left and at the at the end here because we've been talking for about an hour, but and we can do another half. But um, it just that um, it seems to me like I'm I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen next for the left, uh, and. There was, you know, when October seventh happened, and the reaction that a good portion of the leadership of the left, people like Jody Dean and others, and Norman Finkelstein and others, the 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 way in which that attack was justified by the left, as and even celebrated as some sort of positive uh, uh, victory for anti-imperialism, um, has put the left in a very precarious place. Now, I, I feel not because they're they've lost the moral high ground. They kind of have, but they don't. But also just because they they don't have they're turning against the Democrats. They are not going to embrace the Republicans who are not any better on this issue than the Democrats. And so w- w- all they seem to have is the insistence that this embracing Hamas and, and having the right line is what it takes to be on the left. And, 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 you know, and I think that's going to be over just as soon as the ethnic cleansing is over, you know, which is a horrible thing to think. But, um, uh, some part of me thinks, you know, it is horrific what's happening in Gaza and it is common what's happening in Gaza. And to think that we're, that this is going to alter the political reality, fundamentally, is wrong.
0: It is wrong. I think. It is wrong. I mean, I think that, so here, you know, I mean, I'll go back to something that we talked about in the fall when we were first talking about the, the Gaza war in the aftermath of October 7th, which is that for the people who care about the issue, the people who have long-standing commitments on Israel-Palestine as an issue. I think that there is a great fear that the Hamas attack is was just going to justify you know any Israeli response it was going to help Israel. And then what has happened instead is that actually Israel has become discredited in their response to the October 7th attack. That has definitely taken place and so then the shift has been to take maximum advantage of that. And on that issue right now I think that there's maybe more of a popular appeal to the issue than even the you know the Palestinian solidarity movement would have expected you know among young people and again then the question is well what does it represent what's the symbolic value here and I think that that's where you know, the settler colonial issue more so than the genocide issue although these things are identified in people's minds you know, it becomes a kind of Howard Zinn kind of cast of history or something that I feel like how how this translates like, you know, it's very strange for me, Genocide Joe this idea it's very strange for me and I feel like it is like overheated and it is like in a way an expression of disappointment in biden more than like an opposition to biden and so it can turn around pretty quickly i think um meaning that how much will it affect the election it depends on how live an issue it is in a few months from now
1: i think if it becomes a narrower race than it is then it could be consequential
0: it's a pretty narrow race i think it's going to be a narrow race no matter what and um like i think there's going to be a lot of ups and downs between now and november and i think that the democrats are fooling themselves but they're also not entirely wrong that trump's legal troubles will affect the election Mm. you know in terms of the general election i think it boosts him in the primaries It might not help him in the general election though. And I think that's their calculus. I think that's what they think. And so, you know, and, you know, kind of notoriously now it was reported in the media that Biden was like calling up Netanyahu saying the war's gotta be over before the election. Right. Right? And, you know, and Netanyahu's like, yeah, it will be over when I say it's over and I don't care about your election, really. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, to the left, you know, that's because they think that Trump will be more pro-Israel. And that's where I feel like, you know, it's, it's not going to be as simple as that. You know, so again, they, I think that this is where the anti-imperialist issue, it's there, and maybe you were right to call attention to the Ukraine situation, because maybe it's more there than it is in Israel-Palestine, other than what we were saying earlier about how, the current Gaza war might represent the kind of, you know, return of U.S. involvement in Middle Eastern conflict and the war fatigue, right? So I think that that's where we have to separate these things out. So the the left is a lens through which to look at the political sentiments of the greater society, but it's it's also very much a distorting lens, um, both potentially and actually. Uh, and so I kind of feel like the parties, you know, I'm not sure that they've exactly figured out the public messaging on this. You know, I I think that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was much more willing to put himself forward on the issue of like sunsetting aid to Israel, mm-hmm. and Trump has has had a very light touch with it. He hasn't said much about it. Um, you know. He sort of maintains that it may, maybe like Ukraine, it wouldn't have happened if he had still been president, mm-hmm. right? And maybe because Iran, he would have had a deal with Iran or because Iran would have been more cowed or something like that. He's not playing up. He is saying, but he's not playing up in any significant way, his disappointment with Netanyahu. Right. He has articulated it for those who are paying attention. And I feel like both the Republicans and the Democrats and certainly the left have an interest in ignoring those kinds of statements by Trump because it doesn't fit their narrative. Right? Because Biden basically wants to say to the pro-Palestinian sentiment, well, if you don't like what I'm doing, you should still vote for me because Trump's going to be worse.
1: Right. But I just feel as though for the left, if they're really gonna take advantage of the way this is uh, hurt re- Israel's reputation, they would be pushing for Netanyahu to step down. They would be aligning with the left in Israel. They wouldn't be demonizing Israel altogether. They would be trying to split up Israel. They're finding. out of
0: ignorance. They, 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 they screw this up out of ignorance. And you know, BDS is obviously a complex issue because BDS kind of anathematizes all Israelis on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, dissidents or oppositional people in Israel are not necessarily against BDS. Right. Right. So it's not like, you know, that, that really is a kind of a fracture point or a weak spot. And so I kind of feel like they are, you know, you know, Likud and Netanyahu, they've been in in power for so long that I think that it's easy for young people to forget that there have been political differences in Israel. Like, kind of ever, right? And, of course, the narrative that they're, you know, posing is very much like 1948, Zionism, settler colonial state, you know, this very absolutist uh, kind of position. And the public discourse doesn't help because you know, critics of Israel, including Israeli critics of Israeli policy are fully willing to totally, you know, paint the most fearsome picture, you know, of the history of Zionism and of Israel. You know, it becomes a kind of Israeli version of like a Howard Zinn history of the United States or something.
1: Yeah, I I, I just wish that I felt a little bit better about the fact that It does look like at the moment when they're saying things like genocide, Joe, that the people on the left are really gonna, you know, turn their backs on the Democrats. But it, somehow I have this intuition that that's, it's a facade, it's (laughs) It's not really, (laughs) yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that what we were talking about previously about how it's just the enthusiasm problem and the turnout problem, and do you need young people to be canvassing for the Democrats to get the turnout? Yes. And maybe you need young people to do ballot harvesting or whatever. No, for real. I mean, there is such a thing as ballot harvesting. I mean, on the right, on the Republican side, right, the big concern is, are the Republicans going to be able to match the Democrats on ballot harvesting? Right. So the big concern is that, well, Trump, you know, has disqualified the 2020 election to such an extent, and maybe on semi-legitimate grounds with respect to mail-in voting and ballot harvesting, that maybe the Republicans are ideologically going to limit themselves in the election by not taking advantage of the new, the new kind of voting. Yeah
1: in, other words, yeah, in other words, they're not going to cheat enough. They're not enough.
0: going to cheat enough, right. <laughs> and, um, exactly. And I think that Trump did a town hall this week, I was watching, it was with Laura Ingram on Fox, and he, she said, well, how are you going to match the Democrats? And he said, I'm going to outswamp them. And what he meant was outswamp, like in terms of numbers but of course he also like the he can't have ignored the connotation and i think laura ingram was kind of horrified that trump was like yeah we're going to do what the swamp does you know we're going to out swamp them we're going to be more you know we're going to do this kind of washington swamp kind of stuff and um she was not happy with the answer and it wasn't a particularly clear answer um so you know
1: but that's true like you know it it's, if you really look into like all the ways the democrats kind of tried to cheat and all the dirty tricks that they did and look at what they said that trump was trying to do um they're the same things and i think the trump really was trying to do those things you know i <laughs> like i and uh so yeah it's a, it's it's a nasty corrupt bullshit system um
0: it absolutely yeah. is and uh so it's a, it's a kind of a yeah, it's a curious circumstance, isn't it? Because um, I think it's going to be a close election, and I think I think that the, the most likely outcome is that it's going to be an uncertain election, meaning it might have to be adjudicated in the courts. It might be like well, Bush I, v. Gore. Well, that that would
1: be very, that would be very um, disruptive. disruptive.
0: It would, and <laughs> that, but I think it's it's kind of like the spirit of the age, spirit of the time. You know, it's kind of like how could it not? How could how could we not have a disputed election in 2024? You know, it's just like, you know, it just wouldn't be an election in 2024 unless it's a disputed election (laughs) and in which the parties can accuse each other of like China helping Biden and Russia helping Trump or something, you know, some nonsense.
1: If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.